Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm very excited to bring you an interview with one of my favorite drummers in any genre, living or dead, one of the faces on my drumming Mount Rushmore, the incomparable Bill Stewart. Since Bill came on the scene in the early 90s, he has been one of the most unique and sought-after voices in jazz and has performed with most of the greatest names in jazz, including Pat Metheny, Joe Lovano, Larry Goldings, Michael Brecker, and John Schofield, with whom he has had an especially long and productive and, in my opinion, profoundly awesome musical partnership. Bill is on Schofield's new album, Combo 66, and has also recently released his latest album as a leader, Band Menu, which features Bill's compositions for a pianoless, guitarless trio with Walter Smith III on sax and Larry Grenadier on bass. Please visit us at workingdrummer.net, where you can check out our entire archive of nearly 200 past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. If you want to support what we do here, along the right side of the homepage, you'll see buttons for PayPal and Patreon, and every donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can follow us on social media, and if you want to be featured on Instagram, post pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. We love seeing what you all are up to out there. So here's our latest check-in with RJ. Let's see how he's doing. Hey, Matt. Hey, RJ. How are you, man? Good, good. I'm in Dallas. I was in, you know, Austin for the last week. We did a run of shows uh, Tuesday through Sunday at the Continental Club down there in South Austin. Right, right. And uh, so, and then I stayed an extra couple days, you know, do my part to help keep Austin weird for a few days. (laughs) And then... uh, And then uh, we're in, I'm in Dallas for, uh, actually for this week. I got some stuff that I'm doing with the band, some um, rehearsing and whatnot. And then we have a we have a, a gig here in Dallas on Saturday, and then and then on Sunday, where our record label is actually flying us up to Chicago to do um, a couple music videos for our new record. Um, I'm not exactly sure the value of a music video these days. Not that <laughs> you know, music hasn't been played on MTV for like a hundred years, but yeah, yeah. but but at least for online, you know, for YouTube and whatnot, you know, we're doing a couple couple music videos for our first uh, couple singles off the new record, and then and then uh, we headed back down to to Dallas after that because we actually play have another gig here next weekend. And then I'll finally be back in, in Nashville after that. It'll, I'll have been gone from Nashville for about mm-hmm. three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you about but, um, that, the, the working with the band uh, and them knowing mm-hmm. that you're in Nashville and you're kind of just kind of getting a lay of the land here. It, what's their reaction mm-hmm. been to that? Yeah? You know, I guess I would say mixed. Yeah. Well, you know, because I think, you know, the... Um, the assumption right off the bat is that I'm looking to leave. That is that I was looking to leave Reverend Horton Heat immediately, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is, it wasn't, it's not really my plan. I mean, I was more my initial, my desire to move to Nashville, you know, has to do with, you know, wanting to, you know, definitely be more involved in music when I'm not working with, with Horton Heat. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, wherever that leads, it leads, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm a side man you know, in, in Reverend Horton heat. So, um, you know, it's no position is guaranteed for life, obviously. Um, and, you know, so I wanted to kind of start, you know, just spreading my wings a little bit and seeing, you know, what's happening in Nashville, um, you know, and, uh, seeing what can grow out of, you know, meeting people and, you know, having playing opportunities out there, especially during my downtime from the band. Right. It reminds me, there's lots of people, that are living in Nashville now. Uh, Jay Weinberg, uh, Pete Parada, mm-hmm. guys that have Pete who plays with the Offspring. Uh, it's a great example of people that have these great established gigs. Um, you know, Jay obviously with Slipknot, but 
for some reason, find mm-hmm. themselves in the off time. I mean, there's even examples of people who go on the road with artists out of Nashville, but then move back maybe to their hometown where they were from to be closer to family. Sure. Like, you know, so there's that opposite thing. I, I'm just kind of curious to know any of your doubters or naysayers, all you can do is bring it every gig and, uh, right. and like assure them, like, look, watch me through my actions. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to take care of business here. Right. The couple guys on the, on the Reverend Horton Heat team that doubted kind of my move have come around in the last, you know, now that it's been a couple months and they've seen that it hasn't caused any logistical issues. And they, you know, they told me, man, you, you sound better than ever, you know, and they know that it's like, I'm not, you know, wasn't trying to like, you know, just use that band as a stepping stone to lead me to something else. I mean, I love playing with Reverend Orton Heat. You know, I, I still have other goals and, you know, yes. dreams of, you know, in terms of my playing career that I'm, you know, I'm hoping to, you know, achieve. And so I feel like the time for me to move to Nashville was now because, you know, like I have, you know, pretty consistent income coming in and have some money saved and, you know, if I'm already like the Reverend Orton Heat gig is basically, I would say, one of the biggest gigs that you could get out of Dallas Fort Worth, mm-hmm. you know. And if so, if I were to, if that band were to stop, you know, I'd be kind of left here, you know, and would be definitely taking a pay cut and would, you know, have, you know, not as many options as there might be if I was, you know, in in Nashville and had been meeting people. And I think it's really smart to use that downtime in a productive way, whether it's, whether you know, and I see people do that all the time, building up their teaching practice or get more clients mm-hmm. recording. And it's hard to, to commit yourself to other projects that require uh, a longer commitment. But if you have that and you prove your salt every time you're out there with them personally and, mm-hmm. and performance-wise, then, hey, what's the big deal? You're being smart. Right, right. And I'll tell you what, like some of the playing opportunities that have happened, like because um, because of that band have been pretty special. Like this last week, we, you know, we had different guests with us each night, you know, that would come up and we would back them up, you know, with on their music. And for two of the nights, it was the legendary accordionist, uh, Flaco Jimenez, you know, from, you know, the Texas Tornadoes. But I have some cool pictures from that week and you know there was there was yeah, just a lot of really do. special experiences well safe travels uh in the next couple of weeks Thanks, and man. uh hopefully you get some laundry and and coffee in and rest time and <laughs> practice time while you're here and we'll catch up again in yeah. a couple more weeks that sounds great Mac. good talking to you brother all right talk to you soon man bye-bye okay bye-bye This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. So, like I said, Bill Stewart's drumming has really meant a lot to me over the years, so it was definitely a bucket list kind of day when I got to talk with him for a while. So without further ado, here's Bill Stewart. First off, just uh, tell us about this uh, this album that you've got coming out. Is it out or is it about to be out? Uh, the official release date is October 19th, uh, so it's going to be out soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm playing at the Village Vanguard this week with the same band on the record. Oh, great. Uh, Larry Grenadier and Walter Smith, and uh, I do have some copies now, so I'm I'm selling them in advance, but only at, at the Vanguard. Right, uh, right. For this, uh, so uh, so yeah, it should be out soon, and uh, should be available to people. When was the last time you made a, a record as a leader, and and what determines the uh, <laughs> the schedule of that? Um. There's no exact schedule because they've been, you know, there's always been some space between all my recordings, I think. But the last one wasn't so long ago. Uh, it was Space Squid. Mm-hmm. I think it was released in 2015. Okay. So, okay. And recorded maybe in 2015 or late 14. I can't remember. But, you know, it's been, uh, I guess, uh, you know, three, four years since I've 
put out a record as as a leader. So right, right. The the ones I'm most familiar with are, are Snide Remarks and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Think Before You Think, which I I believe are some of the earlier ones. Think um, Before You Think was the first, which was I rec- recorded that in '89. Right, eighty nine. Yeah. Wow. Uh, on on later ver- versions, it was bought by a company called uh, Evidence. So in later versions, it looks like copyright ninety five or something like that. But that's not correct. It was released in Japan long before that. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, it's it. Uh, it seems like uh, uh, composing is uh, something that you've done almost as long as as drumming. Um, where where did where and how did um you know your your interest as a as a composer develop well it developed um slowly and just in in terms of wanting to participate in in the direction of music that i was involved in mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, but when i first went to college in university of northern iowa i took a very loose composition class that was sort of geared toward I don't know opening opening people's ears up to more like super modern kind of sounds so mm-hmm. it was sort of running before you could walk in a certain way <laughs> right class but it was open to everybody and there were some people and everyone wrote a little something you know I wrote a little piece in the class but mostly we did a lot of listening and different things so uh so that was a a, a small start and then uh once i came to the east coast i was also in music school and uh at william patterson college mm-hmm. uh, which is now william patterson university and uh anyway i was there and was interested and uh in in studying some composition as well as you know taking uh music theory uh which i got something good out of and uh ear training and this kind of thing but um yeah i, I studied uh some composition with uh dave samuels mm-hmm. uh the vibraphonist yeah very well known uh so i had oh at least a couple semesters working with him i think right right it was about that and uh so you know um he showed me some different things uh and I also had piano lessons with Jim McNeely. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I wasn't really, I was starting to write some, but, you know, my early efforts, I didn't work that good. Right, right. To be honest. Uh, and, um, but I, I kept getting interested and, in, you know, um, I started working more as a drummer and, and, you know, working with different musicians who's, you know, hearing them and, talking with them about different things and, mm-hmm. and uh, different kinds of music to check out and all this kind of stuff. And, and, uh, I just started writing more at home. I had some piano skills cause also I studied piano, uh, when I was a little kid mm-hmm. quit after a few years cause I didn't like practicing. Well, who does? Especially <laughs> <laughs> didn't like practicing the piano. Right. Well, the drums, I was like, okay, I can hit these. Cool. But, yeah. Yeah. Piano was, you know, it was also sort of very strict uh, classical right, right. Kind of thing, you know, which for me as a little kid was testing my attention span, I think. But, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so all these things um, sort of added up into me being able to play the piano and work on some things and and hear some sounds I like and right. write, write them down and eventually take them, you know, into a... a you know, usually an informal session or something I was doing, I would start taking a few things in and, uh, eventually a few people liked what I was writing. So that was encouraging. And, and, uh, so I just kept with it. Right. So, um, drummers who, uh, you know, compose or play piano or play some other instrument, um, often refer to how, uh, that, that those other disciplines, uh, benefited them as drummers and improved their drumming, but it it rarely be, goes beyond that kind of a general statement. So I, I wonder if if you remember um, a couple of specific examples of of how that harmonic training, playing piano, um, influenced your drumming or or improved it. 
it's hard to give a, a, a you know a concrete answer to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think you know I do think it helps, and it helps how you respond to music. And uh, for instance, the one thing I'm interested in is the uh, relationship of harmony to rhythm. Mm-hmm. Uh, how if you hear like you know you hear some tension in the harmony, you might play differently rhythmically than you would if it were a, you know, a very consonant sound. Right. Right. Can't, you know, I can't quantify that. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, well, this is what I would do and this is not what I would do or something. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, but that's, you know, that, that in a lot of the music I play, that's, there's been a connection with those things also because I was interested in, in harmony and, mm-hmm. And you know, chord color and things like that. So yeah, and a harmony, like the words harmony and color, uh, really, uh, you know, kind of lead me to to my next question about that. Is that your your drumming to my ear is so um, orchestrationally driven? Um, uh, did did you did you find that that composing um, kind of changed your ear or guided your ear as to how you wanted to orchestrate things around the set? Well, working with it probably helped, you mm-hmm. know. Again, in a way that I can't exactly say, but yeah, I, I think I think you know, if there's a different section and it has a different feeling, obviously drummers need to, you know, respond to that and come up with something that uh, makes that uh, piece of music even stronger. So, right. so uh, you know, whether it's changing something orchestrationally on the set or uh, changing something dynamically. Uh, Texturally, right, right. Uh, it it reminds me of uh, something that comes up fairly often on the podcast, which is how um, training in jazz drumming can improve your drumming in in other genres. And again, that's hard to quantify. But but I think the conclusion we um, arrive at most often is is that it just it it makes your ears bigger. It gives you a more sensitive musical antenna. Again, in terms of how you're going to react to things. Um, so hearing you talk about how, um, you know, your harmonic training and your piano training contributed to that, it just seems like it, it gives you, a, a much longer list of options as to how you can react to what you perceive and it, you know, increases the amount of what you're able to perceive. Yeah, I would, I would hope. And yeah, it's good for people to check out different kinds of things and different kinds of music and. You know, you don't have to play all of them, but <laughs> right, right. Um, so, along that vein, what um, I mean, you're you're primarily known as a jazz drummer and a jazz artist, obviously. But what other uh, genres have been meaningful to you in uh, in your musical life? Um, well, I think American uh, rhythm and blues music, uh, especially, uh, and also. Uh, classical music, especially kind of 20th century things, Mm -hmm. uh, um, that I was interested in that, you know, um, some of that influence, I think, uh, creeps into my composition. Yeah, Uh, definitely. I hear that. And, uh, so, and yeah, so, so I'd say those things and different, you know, also different eras of jazz. I like, you know, I like types of jazz that I don't play, like swing era. You could, check that out for weeks and right. it's incredible yeah yeah uh, but i don't really play like that you mm-hmm. know uh but uh but so i would say those are the sort of bigger categories that i'm that i was interested in mm-hmm. as a kid i was never actually i was never into uh not to diss but i was never into like so much into rock music mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't have uh you know um any of the rock records I could name, you know, and I'm now I have a few, but right, right. But back in the my, you know, I think it came from my my parents were were musicians and they didn't listen to that. Hmm. We had in the house was not that. Mm-hmm. We did have a lot of singers. We did have some blues, R and B, and my dad was a jazz musician, so we had a lot of jazz records. Right. Other had classical records, although I didn't get into that so much until my college years. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, 
listening to those kinds of things. Yeah. Now you're uh, you are a cousin to the bassist Forrest Stewart. Is that correct? Yeah, Forrest. Yeah, I lived in Kansas City for seven years. Oh, I noticed your uh, your your phone was that area code. Yeah, yeah. So I I got to play with Forrest a, a little bit while I was there. Um, and I'm, I'm just curious, like, did, did the two of you, uh, play together like as kids? Did you have, well, not as kids so much as maybe as young adults, because I remember, uh, well, it was about the time I was graduating high school. Uh, I did some playing uh, with Forrest around Des Moines Mm -hmm. and, and he even had a little group that I played with a little bit for a few gigs. Uh, but he was, um, a, you know, a bit older than me. I don't know how many years, maybe five at least. I'm yeah, thinking. yeah. And so, so we were different enough in age where no, we didn't, we didn't really play together as as kids. But I mean, as I was just getting out of high school, that that is the time when we played some together. Right, and you were kind of looking up to him, and he was bringing you along a little bit. Uh, probably, uh, <laughs> dad too, you know, my dad was a musician, so I, I did not that many gigs with my dad actually, but a few. What so. did your dad play? Trombone. Oh, wow. Cool. My, my wife is a recovering trombonist. <laughs> <laughs> um, so by the time you graduated high school, had you, uh, kind of already determined your course? Like you were into jazz, you were into drumming, you wanted to, uh, move to the East Coast and pursue this, or, or was it uh, a more gradual process? It was a little bit gradual because uh, my when I got out of high school, well, I was already starting to work. I'd, I'd already been working a lot in Des Moines when I graduated high school. I'd been working for the past six months in uh, in a uh, top 40 band. Hmm. So, And I, I was playing five, six nights a week and going to high school. Wow. So, wow. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, you know, I'd, I'd have to go home and like, you know, do my homework, take a nap, do the gig, start over the next day, you know, be a little tired at school. <laughs> wow, man. But I was making some money. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was wondering if, uh, if when you got to New York, you ever went through a period where you were doing like, you know, wedding gigs, top 40 gigs, doing that hustle, but you were doing it as a high school student in Des Moines. <laughs> <laughs> And then I went to uh, University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and then you know, and then I was just going to school, mm-hmm. and uh, um, and I spent one year there and went 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 out east. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, what was uh, your kind of? Did, did you have a plan moving out east? Was was making a go of it in New York kind of the always the plan? Um. I'm not sure I thought of it quite that way. Um, the school wasn't in New York, um, mm-hmm. about a half an hour out. I, I knew I'd have access to New York. And, right. and also a lot of the musicians uh, that I knew from recordings were teaching at William Patterson College, like you know, people I'd seen on, on records like Rufus Reed and uh, Harold Mayburn and Dave Samuel. Right, so, right. Uh, Joe Lobano and all these different people were teaching there. So um, there wasn't anything like that in Iowa, obviously. So uh, I, and also I wanted to get around students who were more interested in, I think, you know, small group, smaller group jazz playing. Right, right. The best way I would describe it, because in the Midwest, it was a lot. It was still at that time a lot of the emphasis on big band and right and i think there still is at, at a lot of colleges sure yeah it's a long tradition yeah <laughs> <laughs> right for for better or for worse um, mixed bag right definitely after graduating college. I mean, I know like playing with Joe Lovano was, was kind of the first big break 
Is that correct? Mm, I don't know. Uh, maybe. I mean, it was he was one of the pl- players I played with early on that was really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I don't know if people heard me like internationally with Joe first. They might have heard me with with either Schofield or Maceo Parker. First. Right. Right. So, uh, but but Joe, I played with before either of those guys and and before he was on like a major label mm-hmm. i played with i played with joe before that so so somewhere around uh, 88 late 88 and 89 i was probably starting to play with joe do a few gigs that i did a few gigs that he was just on and i did a few of his gigs so mm-hmm. so uh, and i knew him from william patterson college because um he was a teacher there and we didn't have much direct contact because he taught saxophone. But uh, one day, uh, Elliot Zygman, my drum teacher, couldn't make it, so they had Joe come in and take the students. So, so I had a lesson with Joe instead. Right. And Joe drum, so so uh, he had some insight there too. But uh, so that's how I met Joe. But uh, anyway, and it uh, it sounds like you um, were able to kind of uh, parlay your your college experience through through the faculty that was there that you mentioned and its proximity to new york um it it kind of you know built you a a little bridge from the academic world into the professional world it did and it gave me a little bridge out of i mean it gave me a little shelter from you know just being dropped in new york city (laughs) right yeah at 18 years old might have been a little intimidating yeah man i think it's intimidating at any age uh especially for musicians once you you jump in it's not as big of a deal as you think but you know it it, and new york was probably a little more intimidating in that time right right Uh, so a little more dangerous a little more uh gritty yeah Mm -hmm. yeah um so as as someone who has lived in New York for so long, um, what are your impressions or observations of the, the changes it's gone through and and what uh, advice would you give to a young musician uh, thinking about ending up there? Um, the city has changed um, mainly because um, I think a lot of people have moved here, but it's become... You know, Manhattan, for instance, is the center of things, and, you know, rents there have gone up so much. Um, I mean, working musicians can't, there's not many places you can afford. Yeah. You want to have, you know, seven roommates and, uh, you know, the tiny little room. And, uh, yeah. um, you know, it depends on what you're up for. Uh, <laughs> or, yeah. You know, yeah. Or if you have unlimited funds or something, that's another story. But, um, that's that's the main thing is that you know what do they call the gentrification also of all of the boroughs um, has um, you know led to just skyrocketing uh, rent and right. so and so it's it's hard especially for for musicians playing music that's creative but that doesn't have a very big audience right that's hard you yeah know? yeah oh so these people are uh, there's people a lot of people trying to do their thing here and not making much money. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. What what part of New Sorry, go ahead. And sticking with it in many cases. So, you know, um, doing what they have to do to get by. But, right, um, right. What part of New York do you live in? I live in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Oh, cool. Okay. And uh, been there a while? Yeah, I've been here for uh, uh, going on 29 years. Wow. wow. Guess, yeah, 20 yeah, later this. No, it's already been twenty nine years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned your your teacher at uh, at college, Elliot Zygman, um, who that is was one of the teachers. Yeah. Right, right. I, I feel like I've heard of him. I'm, I can't say that I'm hip to <laughs> to him. He's probably best known for being on uh, playing with Bill Evans. Oh, okay, yeah. and he's on uh, some of the records with Bill Evans with Eddie Gomez on bass. That was the trio which was with Eddie during those years and mm-hmm. I think with Eddie there were at least two different drummers it was uh, yeah um, so he he would probably have been before Joe LaBarbera yes okay cool I, mean, I think maybe directly before 
Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what was your uh, kind of... Uh, focus as far as the drums were concerned during college were you were there there are certain drummers that you uh gravitated towards and and wanted to emulate um did Elliot put you through uh a bunch of paces that you wouldn't have put yourself through um I was into a lot of the people that I still like now you know I mean uh you know I was when I first came to when we passed in college I was you know I was into Tony Williams and mm-hmm. Jack Jeanette and uh, I was getting further into Roy Haynes and uh, people like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, and I knew a lot of, I know I knew, I knew, you know, Philly Joe Jones and all those kind of people. Right, right. Uh, and so I knew a lot of, I knew a lot of jazz history and jazz, you know, I, 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 I knew main people. And so, um, so when I came, um, yeah, I had lessons with with Elliot, and I think we worked on you know different things. Well, one thing we did do is read out of some snare drum books. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Anthony Cerrone, Portraits and Rhythm. Yeah, yeah, I went through that. That's one of them. Yeah, and uh, so we did that, and you know we would he would set up two drum sets in the room. He always liked to have two sets, so he would play some, and we would trade, you know. We would like try to trade on a song or something, and right, right. We did we did stuff like that. So uh, that's interesting. You mentioned uh, the the portraits and rhythm, the Cerrone book, because I I went through that, um, mm-hmm. and and I remember it uh, really solidifying. I mean, the you know the the rhythms. It's just linear rhythms. It's not you know four way coordination or anything. But I, I remember those rhythms uh, really solidifying my relationship to. Um, to the pulse and to beat one in every bar Um, because you, and my teacher especially, I think made me uh, play those rhythms in a way that a listener could still kind of perceive uh, the downbeat and the pulse. Um, Uh Even though it was, you know, fives and sevens over the bar line and all this, all this goofy stuff. Um, But I'm, I'm just thinking of, of your playing because I think one of the, one of the hallmarks of your playing is being, um, you know, quite quite active, quite rhythmically complex, but still uh, still accessible. You never leave a listener hanging as far as where one is. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. do you think uh, that that contributed to that? I, I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say, but um, I know what you mean about mm-hmm. about about those rhythms. Um, uh, so it probably helped. Yeah. Know? Yeah, there's just there's such a strong uh, uh, pulse in your playing, um, and there there always has been. I, I whenever I have students who are working on jazz, I, I I play a lot for a lot of them. I play something by you to just give an example of like listen to how complex this is, but how uh, followable <laughs> it is. You yeah. know, um, well, clarity is something I you know have worked on so. yeah and that's a that's a great word to to sum up because you know i've talked about your the, the orchestration in your playing um but there's there's such rhythmic clarity and such uh timbral clarity um in terms of the the drums and the tuning and the cymbals that you use um that's it's something that um is not uh talked about very much i think vocabulary is talked about a lot rhythms improvisation but but making your ideas perfectly clear uh and and crystallized i think is something that not enough drummers work on regardless of of genre yeah i think you know a drummer's sound uh affects how you perceive what they play you know yeah yeah so i've thought about that and i like to hear uh, generally speaking i like to hear each limb clearly as far as what's going on rhythmically mm-hmm. so um um, you know, this, I like to hear the, the rhythm I'm playing on a ride cymbal, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I don't, I don't want you to guess what it is. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, and yeah, just the 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 clarity of of your sounds on on each limb really amplify the the orchestration and all the ideas that you have. It's a really cool synergy of of uh, of sounds that you've put together. <laughs> 
Oh, thanks. I mean, yeah. I, I, I hear it the way I do, and, and I mean, I think everyone's playing should be, you know, more or less to, to their taste, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Um, I want to talk about uh, your, your uh, long relationship with uh, John Schofield. Um, mm-hmm. He's just, he's one of my favorite jazz musicians of all time, one of my favorite composers, one of my favorite improvisers, and um, I, I feel like the, the two of you uh, bring out the best in each other. <laughs> um, so how did, you, uh, how did you start playing with John, and, and how has that relationship kind of uh, evolved over the years? Um, I think maybe John had heard about me from a few different people, but uh, I think uh, most importantly from Joe Lovano, uh, you know, uh, before I played with him. Right. You know, so, so he was hearing about a drummer. And, uh, and one day I got a call from him and I, I went over to his, uh, where he lived in New York city at that time and played a session. Uh, you know, it wasn't, he didn't say I'm auditioning you for my gig or anything. Mm-hmm. So I come over and play. I'm like, sure. Yeah. So I come over and went over and played with a, with a bass player. I don't think I've played with before or since. And, um, um, we played, um, and I, I didn't hear anything for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> didn't hear anything. Uh, I remember, yeah, I remember at the session, I think the tempo slowed down a little, huh. which is unusual for me, mm-hmm. uh, and may have had to do with the chemistry of that particular session or whatever. You know, on John, John lays back against the right, time. Right, right. But some, I think maybe I thought, oh, maybe it was that, you know, or, you know, but, but then, uh, but then John produced a Joe Lovano record I did called Landmarks. Mm-hmm. Um, so he really got to hear me then. And he got to hear me with Mark Johnson, who was the bassist on the record. And so then he had the idea to maybe play with Mark and I together. And then we played a session with him, I think, a trio, you know, in his, uh, place in Manhattan and that went well and uh, soon after that John asked me um, to join his band yeah. with, with uh, Joe Lovano and, and Mark right right Joe had already been playing with it for a bit mm-hmm. um, and what, went, what, what year was that that you started playing with him uh, late uh, we did a record is the first thing I did and that was I think November of 1990 wow so uh, almost thirty years ago. That's right. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. And how many records uh, with Schofield since? I mean, it's got to be ten or something, right? I'd have to count. It's probably getting up toward ten. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, nah, so, I think I probably I might forget one of the records too. So. Right, right. <laughs> you get a call from him. You forgot. <laughs> um, yeah, I I uh, remember. Uh, first my my first exposure to your plan was when i was in grad school uh and uh i got the record uh en route the live record with with steve swallow on bass um and it just it blew my head all the way open uh not just your drumming on it but schofield's playing and compositions and um swallow's playing and just the the spirit and the vibe of of that trio was really really special Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, we we still uh, we just recorded something recently. I don't know if it's going to come out, but the, the same deal. Really? I, yeah. It must come out. I yeah. I demand it. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, how has uh, Schofield's uh, you know playing, soloing, compositions um, influenced uh, you as a, a drummer and a composer? Uh, I like John's writing a lot, and mm-hmm. uh, I think his writing has a, has influenced me a, a bit. Yeah, uh, especially um, yeah, a few like one of the tunes on my Snide Remarks record reminds me of John's thing. For instance, uh, a tune called Mayberry. On yeah, I, I, lo- I love that tune. That's a great reminds tune. me of a little bit of something John was doing with a chromatic bass line and two. 
So mm-hmm. that, that's the connection. Um, and uh, yeah, John's music has unusual phrase length. Sometimes it's very you know interesting, but not a overly complicated harmony. I would say definitely, yeah. yeah. And and not just for the harmony. I think the the melody and the overall. Um, yeah, none of it's too complicated for its own good. Which right. Is, you know, it it has it's uh, it's you know it's accessible to the listener in a in a good way. You know, yeah, yeah. it gets to the point rather than right. Uh, it's also evocative. Like I, I think both of your compositions are, are somewhat impressionistic um, well, in terms of how they're titled and in terms of how the you know the vibe of the tune kind of reflects a, a sentiment or a setting. Or mm-hmm. uh, it's it's something I really dig about about both your writing. Oh, thanks. But yeah, yeah, he definitely has that, and you know, the tunes tell a little story or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember asking him, uh, I, I saw the trio with you and um, uh, Matt Penman on bass at the, the Folly Theater in Kansas City uh, 10 years ago probably, and, and uh, Schofield did like a little Q&A session before, and I remember asking him about his composition and his playing, um, you know, he's, I, I said, you seem to have struck this balance between, um, you know, a really unique sound and really unique ideas, but you know, accessible ideas, stuff that has funk and blues and, um, and all this really listenable stuff in it. I said, is that a calculated move on your part? And he said, no, I, I play and I write what feels good to me. Um, and I think he said, that's, that has to be your priority as a, as a creative artist, make it, make it feel good, make it sound good to yourself. And then, uh, if it feels good to you, um, that will come across and, you know, those, <laughs> that enjoyment of it will, will reach beyond the stage into the audience. That's a, that's a very good comment. Did uh, or have done a lot of trio work with uh, with Larry Goldings and yeah. Peter Bernstein, um, and I love playing with uh, uh, organ players. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm always curious uh, to hear other drummers' uh, takes or ideas about playing with uh, with the B3 um, mm-hmm. as opposed to you know an upright bass or an electric bass. Sure. Um. You know, I don't really go into it with a, a, a drastically different approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I know about the organ is it sure isn't a piano, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, it gets a lot louder. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it's one of the few instruments that I think can match the drum set in terms of dynamic range. Mm-hmm. Like... The organ, you can you can play very soft if you want, or you can play real loud. You might be able to even wipe out the drummer, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's something I'm always aware of with the organ, and you know, and, and also the way the just the the the, the timbre of it, uh, also. Um, but um, I think because of that dynamic range, you know, I like to I like to exploit that and. And uh, I think I, I think with the group with Larry Goldings, you know, there's there's a big dynamic dynamic range in the music mm-hmm. uh, um, between how we play on a ballad, uh, you know, uh, and and parts of the music on um, something else that are pretty loud, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even in the course of one piece, there might be a pretty pretty uh, big dynamic range. So and that's the main thing that I me makes it different mm-hmm. it's not that i play like rhythmically that different than it, it would depend on the organ player too because every organ player is different just like every pianist or every bassist is different so um and Larry's the main guy i played with you mm-hmm. know um, i did some playing with uh dr lonnie smith yeah 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 but uh, not nearly as much as I've done with Larry, but 
And both. I mean, those two organ players couldn't be much different, could they? <laughs> much more different. Well, yeah, they, they, there's some common ground in there too, but mm-hmm. uh, but um, yeah, they, they both have a big dynamic range. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess there's you know old uh, organ records that you know I heard and was influenced by too, like stuff with Jimmy Smith, for instance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, a kid i knew the records with grady tate yeah and so a couple of records with donald bailey mm-hmm. and uh and and uh you know those those are things that i listened to uh growing up um you know but i don't know if i was necessarily gonna try to play like that you know i i, I don't i don't play so much different um uh, than if i'm playing with, with another instrument right but, and i'm i'm just thinking there's like a there's a, a a funkiness and a bounce in in all of your playing um and and i wonder if uh some of it can be traced back to to those organ records because they to to me they they kind of uh read that way a little bit i mean other people's organ records like older records yeah yeah the older kind of soul jazz uh i list a lot of that that kind of stuff and also um you know american uh soul r&b music uh right. you know I'm a big aretha franklin fan big fan of a lot of you know bernard purdy mm-hmm. uh, uh so you know I, I i grew up with a mix of stuff like that right right um, I also wanted to ask you about uh, just the, the overall concept of playing trio, um, regardless of the instrumentation, um, because it's 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 my favorite format to play in uh, when I'm playing jazz. And um, you know, you you seem to be a lot of your career seems to be de- uh, defined by playing in in one trio or another. Um, so, what what are your uh, just kind of observations or thoughts about about the the art of uh, drumming in a trio. I don't know. Trios tend to be very you know interactive. Yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes like a rhythm section with a horn player. Depending, sometimes the rhythm section can seem like they're sort of in the background or something. You know right, what I mean? Right. Right. Or the like, same with a, a singer or a horn section or like the the rhythm section kind of becomes one unit. Yeah. Um, I mean, trios have that potential at least to be really interactive i think so i i think that's the and i mean duos would probably be even more like that but you don't you know you don't hear as big a picture of the sound right right uh, usually you know people like to hear a bass sound or something so Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so yeah i would say just the interactive nature of it yeah what, what what makes a trio special and this uh, this latest record is a trio without piano or guitar, right? It's just drums, bass, and sax. That's correct. How yeah. does that How does that change the dynamic? Because I, like I said, I love playing in trio. I I don't so much love playing in a trio without a guitar or piano, without a chordal okay. instrument. Um, so what what uh, led the what made you decide to to tackle that format for this record? Um. You know, I've done playing like that at different points in my career with other people, and uh, and there's a you know a tradition of it too. I mean, starting with maybe Sonny Rollins live at the Village Vanguard, mm-hmm. uh, but um, that's the first record I think of as being really important in that sort of uh, instrumentation. Um, but you know, I've, all my previous records, yeah, they've had chordal instruments, they've had piano in most cases, or I made couple records with um piano and organ together mm-hmm. and that was a trio as well so um so um yeah um the trio with with sax it just opens up uh some you know additional space that that wouldn't be there actually mm-hmm. like space that a piano player comps in that's open now right right so, so it, I can fill up that space more without stepping on um, a chordal instrument like a pianist. Mm-hmm. Um, also, anytime it's piano, I think I have to be really dynamically sensitive because if you hit a note, for instance, 
on the tom or something at the same time a piano pianist hits a chord uh you're gonna wipe a lot of that out right right so, so uh there's a little bit of I don't know if I'd say tiptoeing involved, but yeah, <laughs> you know, you have to be sensitive. Right. Uh, um, but now this, now with the, the, the trio with the saxophone, that space is open, even though we're playing on some tunes that have, you know, chords. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they're not as directly stated. So I can either choose to fill up that space or sometimes I just, you know, don't fill it up more than I would with a piano player, but then you just hear all the space and the music. Right, I was going to say, you can just leave the space for space's yeah. sake. Yeah, which is nice, too. Yeah. Sound, and uh, and it gives this the, uh, you know, the saxophonist uh, and bassist, I think, I think it gives everyone additional freedom in terms of choices they can make right right and having listened to to some of your record um just the the way it was recorded it it feels like um without a chordal instrument both the the bass and the sax have more uh room in the mix for uh their full voice to kind of be expressed just from an instrumental um uh sonic point of view you know there's there's some some overtones or some breath sounds or some some sounds that come out of those instruments that might get lost you know under a chordal instrument and it's cool to just hear those big spaces for the full expression of those instruments to to exist in yeah that's that's a great comment and yeah you hear yeah you hear the nuance of, of you know the tail end of the notes and the comparison right, about uh just the 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 business side of of your career um uh, how have you approached um you know networking managing your brand as a player um (laughs) your because you're i mean you're you strike me as someone who um has you've you've made your living on on your identity on your creative identity as a as a drummer and a, a composer um and i'm wondering how much uh you had to um cultivate that uh you know from a business perspective um i think you know i've done a lot of work as a sideman so um fortunately i've been in a lot of situations with uh, musicians who really let me do what I do best, I think, right. or encourage me also to be myself within their music, mm-hmm. or they just wanted what I had to offer uh, musically, and that's the best situation uh, in terms of being a sideman because uh, uh, you can develop your own voice that way more. And uh, so I'm trying to look for situations where I'm uh, not even actively look, but I on the lookout for situations where I, you know. Um, fit in the best. Right. Uh, feel like uh, I can do do what I like to do, and, and so um, in terms of networking. Um, well, j- let me just interrupt you for a second. Um, is that has that been the case from the beginning, or was was there a, a time in your career when you felt like you had to be? a little more chameleonic and, and kind of, uh, bend your, uh, bend yourself to the situation you were in? Oh, good question. I think, you know, in earlier days, yeah, sure. When I was first in New York, I had to do, do little, all kinds of, things, you know, or more, a more variety of things and, and, uh, uh, say yes to a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 
I, I, the reason I ask is because I think a lot of drummers and musicians in general, um, especially early in their development, are, are kind of torn between, um, you know, do I, do I make myself as marketable as possible or do I uh, really cultivate a, a, an individual identity as a musician? Um, and they're not always mutually exclusive, but um, I think that's a, that's a dilemma that some musicians face. Did you feel that? You know, I think I was lucky because uh, um, at the point, you know, I, I, there was a point where I had enough work, you know, and and where I maybe didn't have to accept everything, mm-hmm. um, accept every, you know, every tour offered to me, right, and, and this kind of thing. Um, so, um, which is a good problem to have, and uh, not everyone has that. You know, can do that. Um, um, so, um, yeah, I've been fortunate, and I've 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 always had good opportunities. So, yeah, so, uh, I've 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 uh, tried to to follow, you know, best I can the, the musical path. Uh, and I and I'm you know it's, I'm excited when I play with someone new that's you know and do something a little different too. I'm I'm excited to do that. Right. Right. Um, what do you, uh, are there, are there things on the horizon that you still want to accomplish, uh, people that you still have yet to play with or a genre you want to tackle? Um, what's, uh, what's in the next, uh, few years as far as goals for you? Uh, you know, I don't really have any mapped out goals. I'll be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, can continue trying to be creative and, you know, uh, I'm, you know, continue to play the drums well and play music well and uh you know it's just <laughs> I, I i got tours coming up a lot of touring coming up with uh with john actually with john mm-hmm. Schofield, and some coming up with uh larry goldings peter bernstein uh which is a trio we co-lead now right uh, and i've been doing european tours and so um you know, beyond that, I don't have any real con- concrete plans, but, but uh, uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, a- ambition is always a good thing, but I think uh, uh, contentment is <laughs> often just as good, if not better. <laughs> and I uh, will try to get out with maybe this, this trio at some point, too. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. In terms of, and, uh, right now, we most we've done a couple of weeks in New York, and this is the second one. Right. So, uh was pretty new a uh, group and 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 i know both walter and larry are very busy doing various things so right right uh, so you know maybe i'll get out there more as a leader too in terms of maybe touring a little or something um um but uh, as it is i'm john's new record is out and so he has a lot of touring coming up in the next year or so right right and what uh what is the name of that record and when was it recorded and who's on it uh, that's called. I think it's called Combo Sixty Six. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. I don't know if it's out yet. It might be out about now. Um, yeah, that's the name of that record, and um, it's with uh, Gerald Clayton, the pianist, mm-hmm. and Vicente Archer, bassist. Uh, okay. It's a really, It's a great group. I know. Really. I know about uh, Gerald. I don't know Vicente. Mm-hmm. Um, so just more of uh, John's uh, original compositions. Uh, almost completely. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, he, Whole, whole book of new things for this this band and uh so uh yeah cool looking forward to that man well thank you so much for for doing this and for talking with me um on a on a, a personal note this was a, a huge honor for me because uh i mentioned uh you know in grad school i discovered that that record en route i drove around with it in my car for an entire summer it was just on <laughs> on repeat and and that was uh that was the beginning of a of a, a love affair with with your playing that continues to this day it's just been a huge influence on me um and uh i i just want to thank you for talking with me and thank you for being you well thanks zach thanks for having me and thanks for your interest and uh uh wish you all the best uh with the website and the everything yeah and uh, likewise with uh, with the record i hope it is continues to be received well okay good great cool thanks All so right. much bill take care zach 
there you go, Bill Stewart. No one like him, and thanks again to him for that talk. Check out his latest record, Band Menu, and Schofield's latest, Combo 66, as well as the many albums uh, by Bill's long-running trio with Larry Goldings and Peter Bernstein, or any of the other hundreds of recordings Bill has played on over the years. Please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on Stitcher and iTunes, and if you do, please leave us a rating and review. That's very helpful to us. We also have some episodes available on YouTube with more coming soon, so if YouTube is your preferred media platform, check us out there. Also, once again, follow us on Instagram at Working Drummer Podcast, and don't hesitate to reach out to us if you have any questions or comments. We always appreciate hearing from you. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.